It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, we've reached the end of another week and it's been quite a week, hasn't it? There's been an awful lot to talk about. There's been an awful lot of numbers uh, actually put out there. So statistics have been the order of the day, uh, if you like. We just had Jeremy Hunt making a speech uh, setting out the five priorities. The same five priorities, by the way, that Rishi Sunak uh, came out with just a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, uh, what we're going to do uh, is put the letter E in front of every one of them as well. But I'm not quite sure why he's done that. Uh, but he's going to halve inflation. Uh, he's going to uh, make growth happen. Uh, he's going to stop the boats. That's actually the fifth thing. Uh, he's going to reduce the NHS waiting time. I can never remember what the fourth one, fifth one is. Uh, but anyway, that's what he says he's going to do. We've got Kate Hoey, uh, Baroness Hoey, no less, who's going to talk to us about that. But also, uh, we have had these statistics this week. The one I think that was probably the most stark was that there was one one death every six days, one murder every six days by somebody out on probation. A criminal who was out on licence every six days murders an innocent person in this country. Today, we've got an even more remarkable and incredible uh, statistic, which is that the people smuggling gangs in the past year alone, according to data collected by the French government, have made £183 million. Right? That's right. £183 million. We've asked the question regularly on this show... Can we find any government department that's actually fit for purpose, that's working properly? The NHS, uh, not really. Uh, the Border Force, not really. The Metropolitan Police and the rest of the police forces in this country, not really. Uh, more or less any government department you care to look at, the Department for Work and Pensions, HMRC, anything at all that has the taint of public sector working on it doesn't seem to work terribly well. But we finally found something that works brilliantly. Because in 2018, they only made £1 million, the people smugglers. They've now made £183 million. That's from about 45,000 people coming. We're told that this year it could be as high as 65,000 or even 80,000. So they'll make even more money. Jeremy Hunt says he's going to stop the boats. Well, how is he going to stop the boats? Uh, we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about HS2 as well, which, guess what? It's now beginning to sound a bit like the trams up in Edinburgh. When they built the trams, they said they were going to go all the way from the airport all the way down to Leith. And then it didn't happen. Well, HS2 was supposed to come all the way down from Birmingham into central London. Now they're saying it might stop in West London. I mean, I don't know why they need to bring it into central London, to be honest, because it's already coming straight down uh, towards like, somewhere like Shepherd's Bush, Wormwood Scrubs around there. Apparently, it's not going to come all the way into London, despite the fact that it's over budget, despite the fact that it's cost billions and billions and billions and billions of pounds. It's simply not working. What a surprise. But finally, as well, the other thing that's not working, we said this over Christmas, 
the Royal Mail, loads of people still waiting for Christmas cards and Christmas presents because 60% of people were affected by all the Royal Mail strikes. Deliveries from places like Every, Hermes, whatever um, company you wish to talk about uh, commercially, not working. We've got an amazing story from Bournemouth today about a couple who ordered a sofa. The sofa was delivered to their house. The people who brought it in got it stuck halfway up the stairs. But instead of finding a solution to what to do, having completely wrecked the inside of the house, knocking holes in the wall, damaging the banisters, they just left it. They said, oh, we've got to go. So we're going to take your stories today on moving horror, delivery horror, shocking states of affairs. We know that an awful lot of people who are supposed to be getting a delivery from Amazon or somewhere else simply don't get it. They never see it. It never gets to them. We'll be talking about that, plus much besides. Don't forget, Plank of the Week tonight, 7 o'clock. Don't miss that. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. A very good morning to you. And apologies if my voice sounds a bit scratchy, but uh, I've got a bit of a cold. And I know that, you know, nobody cares really, and neither should you. Um, and it's a bit of man flu, so I'm not going to make a big thing of it, but I do feel a bit rough. So if I launch into a coughing fit at any point, uh, I'm afraid it will be down to my amazing guest, like Kate Hoey, uh, to speak on my behalf. Kate, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I've managed to avoid the lurgy until now, and finally, it's finally got me. Uh, so I did all right, but uh, here we are anyway. So hopefully, if I start coughing madly, then you'll, you, if you don't mind picking up and just I'll talking you. on my behalf, that would be brilliant. Uh, let's start off with Jeremy Hunt, I guess. What did you make of his uh, his optimistic speech? He's talking about lots of words beginning with E. Um, he's got the same five priorities as uh, Rishi Sunak. All very, um, you know, noble, I suppose. But how's he going to do it? Well, I, ha- I haven't heard the full speech and I've only heard the sort of reports of it. It does seem like he's sticking to these five uh, priorities that Rishi Sunak came out with. And of course, I mean, I don't want to go into it now in great depth because you're fed up hearing me talking about it. But, you know, there wasn't one single mention of um, the big row with the EU over Northern Ireland. And no. I think that's that's very, very annoying. Um, I would have liked them to be announcing that they weren't going to go ahead with putting up corporation tax, yeah. that they were going to look at actually reducing tax for the lowest paid and, in other words, allowing people to earn more before they have to pay tax. You know, I think everything just seems to be the, the wrong way round and that we're going back again to the way things they tried to do things, you know, years ago, this old-fashioned idea of, mm. of, of economics. I mean, I appreciate we have to make make savings but somehow the way that you make savings i don't believe is by um making the poorer people pay more and even and then at the other end start putting in more help and support for those poorer people so it's kind of you know it seems to me not not very common sense approach but also you know this whole question of um i I mean you're probably going to talk about it to more experts later on hs2 yeah i was very very pleased looking back you know sometimes you look back on your record and you realize how many times you voted against something Mm. that everyone thought you were mad to vote against and then later on things change and you're suddenly in the uh, you know having done the right thing and i i just think the whole hs2 project from the beginning was doomed you know we're not in this country i'm afraid very good at doing big projects no and one of the problems and one of the problems for me with hs2 is the immense amount of time that it was going to take uh to to come to fruition i mean i think uh, you and i without wishing to be um too dark about it we'll probably be long dead by the time the train's actually running 
I was just going to say that, that I don't think I'll, I'll probably not live to see the actual first one go, never, you know, the first <laughs> bit of it. But I mean, it, just think of the money that's already been spent, how that could have in, really improved transport links in across the country. You know, mm. if we reopened some of those train lines that were closed, if we did a lot of those things, making people living in communities, particularly in rural areas, who feel quite isolated and have to get, you know, trains are very, very difficult. You have to go a long way to get a train. That would have made a real difference. So mm. anyway, um, so I, I'm not sure he said anything particularly exciting. No. Uh, and I don't think business will be waking up thinking, this is great, we've seen a real change. Exactly right. And I mean, let's face it, while HS2 has been under construction, if you like, the whole rest of the network, the train network, has fallen into complete and utter disrepair and disarray. People who travel by train now tell me that it's more or less a complete and utter lottery. Um, I was speaking yeah. to uh, a guest last night over in our studios in West London who had come down from Wakefield. And she said, uh, I said, oh, have you come, where have you come from? She said, Wakefield. Uh, are you going back tonight? She said, well, I'm hoping to. But she said, to be honest, I'll get to um, the station and I won't know until I'm actually at the station whether the trains are going to be running. It's nonsense, yeah. isn't it? And that's happening all over, over the country. I have a friend who lives down in Devon who's really quite desperately keen to come up to London, but she's getting older and she, she just knows that every time she makes those plans, either a strike happens or the train is cancelled and you end up sitting on a train for hours. And it's, it's terribly, terribly ridiculous, really, that a, a, such a small country, really, as we are, that we can't get our transport yeah. system absolutely working perfectly and you know again it's like a lot of these organizations and institutions there are far seem to be far far too many people at, at sort of top end who are or the middle end of management who are making decisions that are not based and you know you were talking there in your introduction about uh, about postal uh, what's happening to the post now i i have to say i'm a great supporter of the postal workers because mm. i live in a rural area and we know the importance that good postmen and women do you know they often do so many things above and beyond their job delivering things passing messages on all kinds of things but you know the management at royal mail have just i believe set out to kind of almost destroy it and you know when i was young younger and was teaching i used to teach postal cadets mm. in order to be a postman or postwoman you had to be a postal cadet for something like a year year and a half where you were trained properly you know they wore beautiful uniforms they looked as if they were part of a kind of you know some kind of um, service yes that, that they were service. they were and sort of community army weren't they and they were always yes, the most reliable looked, and also they were really good gone. yeah and they were that's also really gone. they were also really good for sort of keeping an eye out um, on the streets, if they saw something unusual, they would be there every day, so they would recognise it. They'd know if somebody wasn't picking up their milk and they'd maybe alert the police, mm. all of those things. But again, but if you talk to a postman now, if, you, if anyone listening to this actually goes out and talks mm. properly to their postman or postwoman, they will tell you just how many extra managers there are yeah. now in those, in those big buildings, how many middle, middle-range managers. And what are they actually doing? Because they've never been postmen and postwomen, most no. of them. They don't know what it's like. And they've changed it. So the postal dis dispute, I'll just get this in and then I'll shut up, is actually not so much about pay as about working conditions and yes. changing practices and the determination of the Royal Mail to push p parcels mm. rather than mail. They don't really want people to send letters anymore. They're not interested in that. They're more interested in, yes. in the parcel side. 
Anyway, end of my but, rant. But no, listen, no, but you're quite right to say it because we do suffer in this country now from a kind of outbreak of managerialitis. We've got too many managers and not enough people actually know what they're doing. You know, that's why the postal service isn't working. That's why the trains aren't working. It's why the NHS yeah. isn't working. It's why the police isn't working because they've yeah. got enough people at the front end actually doing the job, but they've got plenty of people in the back office telling them what they should be doing. And you kind of go, yes. well, that's the wrong way around. This, anybody could tell you that. It's like me being sitting here uh, and having like 50 people out there telling me in my ear what I should be saying. You know, I prefer mm-hmm. if nobody says anything, which is the way I like it, <laughs> and they generally don't. But, you know, you can't run a business like that, yeah. can you? It's a tick box mentality yeah. when I live. Absolutely true. To ridiculous. Now, let's go to Nicola Sturgeon, because oh. uh, this has been some story this week. You know, Nicola Sturgeon, it seems to me, has completely kiboshed her own, um, you know, trans kind of um, law, which was going to be completely and utterly revolutionary in Scotland. Um, it's now in disarray, according to the Telegraph this morning, because she's done what I think we all thought she should do, which was to make sure this, this trans rapist does not go to a women's prison and instead goes to a men's prison because I keep saying when the crime was committed, he was a man. Um, he was not uh, in transition. He was not anywhere near being a woman. He raped two women because he was a man and he should serve his time as a man. It's that simple, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, and rather it makes me laugh when they go on about risk assessment. Yeah. Probably there were about 100 people sort of risk assessing this man, mm. woman, whatever you want. But the reality is anyone who rapes women should not end up being in a women's prison. Yeah. It just seems absolute common sense. So why it took all this time to sort that out and how the prison service itself, now probably they're under you know, quite strong rules that they have to look at everybody individually as, 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 as they mm. say they have. But again, how could they have allowed this to happen? And of course it makes her whole policy of reducing the age that you can decide to uh, self-identify, basically. Mm. That's, what, that's what's going to be it happens in scotland thank yeah. goodness the government has stepped in and is has has stopped it in the meantime because it is affecting women right across the united kingdom mm. and you know this this idea that the united kingdom government shouldn't be stopped shouldn't stop something that another part of the united kingdom the devolved government is doing mm. is is just mad i mean they've got to be able to they've hardly they've never used it before and this time it's absolutely the right thing to do mm. so i'm 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 pleased that she's had to to draw back on what she was doing, but she hasn't drawn back far enough, and therefore the United Kingdom government's going to have to do mm. it if we want to protect women and women-only spaces. And I feel very strongly yes. about that, particularly because of what's happening in sport. Yes, um, absolutely. Know, well, we'll, come, yeah. we'll come back to that because I think she's yeah. definitely overplayed her hand and she has now got herself in an impossible situation. I wouldn't be surprised if she has to now completely reverse this particular law that she wants to bring in in any event, regardless of mm. what the British government does. But stay with, with us if you could. Baroness Kate Hurry is with us right now. We're going to talk about uh, the migrant crossings. We're going to talk about uh, women in sport, trans women in sport, of course, as well. Much else besides, as well as the Brexit debate, which is still raging. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Gray. More after this. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. I'm very grateful for all of the advice I'm getting on what I should do to make myself feel better. Uh, Jay Dano says this. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Sorry to see you have the lurgy. Lem's sip at work and a nice bottle of whiskey this evening. I'm sure it will cure you. Well, do you know, I used to be one of the cures that I would do was to drink quite a lot of whiskey. I did have a couple of nips of it last night, um, but it didn't seem to do any good. Uh, but I'm sure I'll be better by tomorrow. But anyway, never mind. And that's enough about me, as they say. Um, after listening to Tweedledum uh, on the economy and his plans, he has reinforced my opinion that Rishi and Hunt are the Mike and Bernie Winters of politics. 
politics. They haven't got a bloody clue. Well, that's one for the teenagers, Mike and Bernie Winters. They were a pair of sort of not very funny comedians from the 70s. Um, I'm sure Kate remembers them. But, I mean, uh, it is ridiculous, this whole situation, Kate, where uh, we're facing a um, massive increase in, in uh, uh, expense. People are paying ludicrous amounts of money for their energy. Um, and he's refusing, point blank, more or less, isn't he, to, to reduce taxes in any way. In fact, taxes, if anything, are probably going to go up between now and the end of the year. Well, I, I suppose he, he he certainly doesn't want to look like Liz Truss. That's what he's uh, determined not to right. be. Uh, I don't think that. anybody can look that bad. I mean, obviously, Liz Truss went too far too quickly uh, without really kind of getting people to understand what she was trying to do. Um, and I think that, you know, that there is a halfway house here and he seems to have gone completely in, in the opposite direction. Uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, I just think people on the whole want to have more of their own money to decide their own priorities. And, and um, rather than the government making, you know, getting involved in every aspect of your life. So he's, he's, um, he's not, I, I think he's not really showing yet um, the leadership that is, is needed to be prime minister. You know, I, I don't like to, well, I sh I'm saying it, so it's not a question of not lying to it. I don't think he looks like a prime minister no, either. No, um, it's a funny thing, you know, isn't it? Because internationally, it's, it's when he's a certain... It's a certain je ne sais quoi, isn't it? And and you can't always put your finger on what exactly what it is. I mean, Liz Truss didn't look very prime ministerial either. No. I was quite surprised at how bad she was at no. kind of. I mean, Boris. The reality is, Boris looked and behaved. Uh, you know, he he always came across as someone who was in charge, even if he was making the wrong decisions, even if he was saying the wrong things, even if he was sort of doing silly things. He always looked like he was mm. in charge. And even just pictures this week of him going to. Um, out, out to Kiev yeah. and, and, and you know he, he looked like somebody who was in charge yes um, well do you know he yeah, was in but, our TV studios yesterday the lead Doris has ah. got a new show coming out next Friday and she's done a, an interview with him and people were genuinely <laughs> excited that he was in the building ah. you know that's I, the thing well you know I, when I worked with him at, the, the, at uh, City Hall it was anywhere you went it was just like uh, a royal visit <laughs> Exactly, but only that's exactly right. Only uh, less security, and the thing that really got to me is that he, you know, he travelled all around London on his bicycle uh, when he was mayor. Nobody, mm. no, um, no support in terms of security or anything like that. He was the best known figure in the whole of the country, mm. and um, you know, Sadiq Khan, I think the mayor has has a you know protection with him. He's always in his car except well, he when he gets photo op. But what about Boris? Do you think he could ever come back? I mean, I think his time has kind of passed, to be honest. I think I think it's I mean he is going to now spend I would say quite a bit of time just doing interviews making money you know and all of that um I suppose if the conservatives lose badly as it looks like they could at mm. the next uh, election then um they will be looking for something totally different and I suppose bringing Boris back would not give them that real change mm. but I still think that he is the only person at the moment in the Conservative Party who who could actually have a chance of winning back um, some of the keeping holding on to some of those mm. seats that won at the last election, uh, but I think the vast majority of the public are basically fed up with all the main political parties. I'm afraid yes. they just see them very similar. Um, you know, Labour and the Tories on most issues really. They might pretend that they're very different, but they're yeah. actually not that different. And interestingly, one of the things that I've heard a lot this week, actually, with Keir Starmer and with Labour is that because of their kind of 
difficulty in defining what a woman is and the trouble they've had oh. with Rosie Duffield and all of that and yeah. um, uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle and all of the nastiness in the party. I mean, it's become the new anti-Semitism for Labour, hasn't it? I think a lot of voters are saying, if they can't tell me what a woman is, we're not voting for them. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we're always having these discussions about has, has Labour got a woman problem? And, and I always say, well, if they can't, if the leader can't even define mm. what a woman is, then they've clearly got a problem, yeah. a woman problem. And Rosie Duffield has been treated appallingly. And what seems to have happened is that Keir Starmer, rather than stepping in and, you know, sort of almost encircling her with, with love and attention mm. and, and making statements, has, has shied away from this issue. And I'm afraid that's what's got wrong wrong with Labour now. They have they have they they they're onto every little minority mm. issue there is, and taking taking the lead on that, and forgetting that the vast majority of their basic decent supporters just want mm. to see Labour policies that are about yeah. the economy. And you know they've got strong. They've always had strong women in the party, and you were one of them at a time when Labour was a very different party. Um, but you know, where's Jess Phillips? Where's Angela Rayner? You know, where are these women that are very, very vocal on all sorts of issues, but don't seem to be very vocal on the issues of women's rights? I just don't understand it because you know, for most of them, they would claim to be be feminists and have worked hard as we all did in our own way to make sure there were more women when I went in first there were only 40 win, 41 yeah. women in the whole of parliament so a lot of things have changed but instead of kind of for, they seem to have forgotten that you know women uh, women are women and this idea that trans women are women it, it's it's just it's it's just such a nonsense mm. and I just I do believe the tide is turning on it yes it's, no, I think, I, think, I think you're right. You wanted to mention yeah. the sporting situation because oh. definitely changing in that world, isn't it? Yes, except that World Athletics, which is Chief Executive Lord Seb Sebastian Coe, they've just announced that they're going to um, allow athletes who have trans as, to, as long as they've got a certain level of, of hormone. And, you know, that they're actually going to look at it in a, in a scientific way and measure people. And if they're if they live up to the standards that World Athletics is setting, then you will be able to get someone who has trans, who's become a woman, or and even gone through all the you know the proper medical assessments mm. and changes, will still um, still will have extra potential. And I don't think young women will feel that they've got a, a, an opportunity now. Um, it's really a very serious issue yes. that I think again... I mean, I think beginning. in the end, isn't it going to be making more sense if there are so many trans athletes coming forward in various different disciplines? Have their own separate... Have, their own, have their own trans games, you know, have trans Absolutely. Olympics, have, 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 you know, trans Olympics in the same way that you have, um, you know, the, um, the, 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 the regular Olympics um, and you have all sorts of other competitions as well. You know, it's not a problem. You have the, the, the Invictus Games, you know, for all sorts of um, you know, yeah, for veterans, veterans mm -hmm. who might have injuries, and you have uh, the Paralympic Games as well. You know, for people who who have had injuries and who have got some kind of disability or other. You know, so why not have the trans games? But I, I do think that this could well be the. I mean, I know Sturgeon, uh, the leader of the SNP, is not as popular as she was, and I think um, this could well be the, you know, the just the bit that really makes makes her topple mm. over at some stage. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, listen, great to see you, Kate. It's been too long. We must get you back on more regularly. Thank you very much indeed. Good to see you, Kate Hoey, Baroness Kate Hoey, voice of reason and a reasonably uh, sensible voice of what used to be the Labour Party. She's now an unaffiliated peer, of course, because the Labour Party has moved and shifted all over the place and is completely and utterly bonkers mad, not least because Keir Starmer and even the women in it can't tell you what a woman is.
What's going on? This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Alan in Cheshire says this. Ray the Jeremy Hunt speech. It will be interesting to see how the government will persuade people who have decided to retire early back into work. The problem is that if you retire early on a reasonable pension, then going back to work means you will probably go into the 40% bracket very quickly. So it will be interesting to see how the Chancellor will be able to make it attractive to go back to work. Whether he likes it or not, uh, if he is serious on this topic, he will have to reduce taxes. Well, I think that's true. And I think everybody understands that. You cannot build growth with high taxes because people have less money to spend. They therefore buy fewer things. They therefore spend less money uh, in the high street. And so the economy does not, in fact, grow. Well, the only way that people can make money then is to put the price of everything up, which doesn't really work. We're going to talk to Ross Clark about all of that in a moment. But just before that, let me tell you a story, which is a remarkable story. But it's one that is particularly human because it's one that has affected, I'm sure, many of you as it has uh, me in the past, because it's about a sofa and the sofa that would only go so far, basically up the stairs. There's a couple in Bournemouth uh, who wanted to get themselves a nice new sofa. They were doing up the house. People who now actually are spending more time at home, partly because they can't afford to go out, are trying to make their homes look a bit nicer, right? Now, uh, this guy's name is Luke Ansell. His wife is Eloise. Uh, They ordered the bespoke £1,230 sofa, a leather sofa, no less, a white one, I think, And they had it delivered, as you might expect. Now, the guys who arrived, as you're watching the TV now, you'll see the damage that was done. People tried to take it up the stairs. Now, if you've ever had something taken upstairs, you'll know sometimes it's difficult. If you try and take a bed upstairs, if you try and take a double mattress upstairs, it can be difficult. Sometimes they actually try and put it through the window for you. But these guys arrived. They said, don't worry, we're good at fitting things into tight spaces. This is what we do for a living. Uh, so what we'll do uh, is we'll move this. Actually, the sofa's not white, is it? It's brown. I thought it was white. Anyway, never mind. Um, so they get it stuck, basically, halfway up the stairs. Not before they've knocked several holes in the wall, scraped it along uh, the side of the, uh, the skirting, scraped it along the side of the panelling, knocked another hole in another part. Though. I mean, it's a horrendous job, right? But worse than that, they didn't actually finish the job. They got it halfway up and they decided, actually, now it's a bit stuck. So we can't do anything else um, and we've got another job to do, so we're off. So they actually left. They just left the whole sofa stuck halfway up the stairs. These people had to call in their neighbours. Luckily, they said, we've got some really good neighbours and good friends. And then eventually we managed to dislodge it from its position where it was stuck and we managed to get it upstairs. But I mean, we've all suffered. We did some uh, amazing stories last um, year, just before Christmas, when we talked about every the delivery company and how many people, how many of you were having trouble getting your deliveries actually to come to the door because every drivers were like taking pictures of them somewhere else, dropping them off at wherever they liked. The stuff wasn't getting to you. But let's talk today about some of the more, shall we say, complicated deliveries that you've done. Because I, when I first moved back from America, funnily enough, moved into a very small house uh, in um, a place called Primrose Hill. And it was a tiny little muse house with a tiny front door, tiny windows. And we had all this American furniture, which was huge. Big sofas, big tables, big chairs, right? All very sort of, you know, um, she-she stuff. But we couldn't get in the house. So we had to hire a carpenter who came with a moving company, pay him loads of money, and he had to cut it all in half. Had to cut the sofa in half, had to cut the table in half, had to cut the chairs in half, and move them inside the house, right? Worse than that, when we moved the next time, we had to cut them in half again to get them out. I mean... Just ridiculous. So anyway, 
let's have your stories. Let's have your uh, tales of woe about moving things around because I'm sure you've got them. 0344 499 is the number. Let's talk to Ross Clark, though, now author and columnist at The Telegraph. He'll tell us what he made of Jeremy Hunt's speech, the five priorities that he said he had. His priorities are apparently our priorities, Ross. They're also Rishi Sunak's priorities by bizarre coincidence. <laughs> Yes, yes, but I, I think that the, the one thing that, that sort of dominates everything, really, really. I mean, obviously, there's sort of a lot, lot of uh, um, uh, platitudes in, yes. in in these kind of speeches. But I think the thing that really matters, the, the sort of debate that's going on from, from on the back of this, is when will we have tax cuts? Um, and Jeremy Hunt has um, sort of ruled them out in the near future. Say, so, you know, I want no taxes, but we can't afford them at the moment. There are a lot of Tory MPs still who will say, well, you know, come on, we, we do need tax cuts. We need some kind of tax cuts. It's the only we need desperately to uh, provoke economic growth. And it's the only way we're going to grow as a nation is, is through, you know, having lower taxes. And, um, I, you know, I have a great sympathy for, for that argument in, in that we need um, lower taxes. But um, I think with, with this, I am with Jeremy Hunt on, on the uh, matter that the public deficit is at a more critical stage. Getting Control of um, public finances is, is the more um, critical um, ambition just at the moment. I mean, you've got to remember back, I mean, only last September, what method, it finished off Liz Trust and Quasi Quarting when they tried to cut taxes. OK, they totally over the top. Um, but the, the basic problem is that no UK government has balanced the books in two decades. This is a problem began with Gordon Brown. And year on year, we've been piling on the debt and piling on the debt um, for the past decade. Nobody seemed to care about it because interest rates are low. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And then, of course, interest rates rose. And it's got to the point where this financial year, taxpayers will be paying over a hundred billion pound just to service the government debt that is just to pay the interest on the debts that we've accumulated and that's two-thirds as much as we pay on the mm. nhs you know think for the nhs i mean think about it you know if we didn't have this great debt burden if past governments had managed to um balance the books we could almost afford another nhs now uh, well, um, it's fine because don't worry. We've got a, we've got a sort of a, an answer for the problems in the NHS. Basically, Rod Stewart's going to pay for everything um, <laughs> because he's on the front pages today saying that he's happy to fork out. It's a sort of DIY NHS now, isn't it? If you if you need anything done, just pay for it yourself. Well, yes, it's very kind of Rod, but um, I think he's um, rather feeding into this fallacy that um, perpetuated particularly by the Labour Party that um, the wealthy billionaires millionaires are got such broad shoulders they can bear the burden of all paying for public yeah. services and um you know well um, i love this i don't know if you've noticed if you've, people don't have to worry no well, i don't know if you've noticed this latest argument that gets made now by people on the left who basically say well if you have got more money then you should pay uh, more money for your own health care despite the fact that it's supposed to be universal despite the fact that you know uh, everybody should have access at the point of uh, sale to free NHS health care if you've got money you should now be paying for it people are even suggesting that if you've got money you should pay more for everything you know it's kind of bizarre world that we're now living in where some Labour Party people are suggesting um, that even your electricity should be tariffed depending on how much money you've got so if you're well off you pay more for your electricity than if you're, if you're poor 
Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about the NHS, the NHS exists by consent. Mm. And the reason we, we're happy to, most of us are happy to pay for it through our taxes is because we think it's universal health care and it will be there for us when we need it. Mm. Well, if you're going to take that away and say that anyone over £50,000 or something is going to have to pay for their hip operation, well, you destroy that. And um, people then start asking, well, you know, if the NHS is not there for me, well, I don't want to pay for it. Right. And uh, start resenting it. Exactly. And, uh, and why is it suddenly now that the Chancellor, this particular Chancellor, is worried about borrowing money? Because Britain, as you say, has been uh, raised in, uh, uh, on a diet of borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And when you run out of borrowing, uh, you just invent some money, a bit of quantitative easing. So why suddenly now is that no longer acceptable? Um, well, because, and, you know, till a year or so ago, interest rates were about half a percent. Well, they're now heading up possibly to four and a half percent. Or, mm. you know, markets recently was expecting interest rates to go up to six percent. Well, I mean, that's a huge extra debt burden. And um, also a lot of UK government debt is linked to inflation, linked to the um, consumer prices index or the retail prices index, some of the older debt. And, um, you know, that's standing over 10% now. So, um, you know, there's a huge extra burden. What, you know, seemed quite a light burden of debt a couple of years ago. It's now a very serious mm. burden of debt. It's costing a lot of money just to pay the interest. Yeah. And we seem to get Yeah, into but it's this... never really bothered them. I mean, we've now got, I was listening to somebody the other day telling us that uh, in, in, in the months to come, our debt to GDP ratio will actually be 106%. We'll actually have bigger debt than we've got GDP. You know, and I can understand um, how you might be worried about that getting bigger. However, how on earth did they let it get so big in the first place? Well, we seem to develop this idea, um, particularly on the left, but not exclusively on the left, that um, any, you know, anything that involved government actually balancing its books, that would be called austerity, you know. It's, oh, um, God. As if we're trying to sort of... Um, make people well, poorer. You well, know, we had austerity, but that didn't seem to do any good. They make any difference? Well, well, I mean, go wind back to two thousand and ten. Britain was in a very, very serious position, then. we were very close to what we experienced last September. Um, in the you know, global investors in government bonds were losing confidence mm. in Britain's ability to pay because Gordon Brown had borrowed so much money. Um, Cameron and Osborne. Um, and with the help of the Liberal Democrats, give them credit, um, they took it very, very seriously. And for the first few years, there was a very um, concerted attempt to um, reduce the debt burden, mm. to balance um, government revenue um, with, with, um, with, with expenditure. Uh, but then, you know, as time went on, suddenly the sort of brakes came off and the, the um, you know, the charges of austerity got to the government a bit so they start uh, osborne started putting back the date he was going to balance the books one year at a time and then philip hammond came along and said i'm declaring an end to austerity and then boris sort of opened the um opened the taps on public spending altogether we got into the pandemic and then suddenly the, the, even the conservative government thought that role of government is to pay all our um, energy bills, pay our wages, and um, you, you know we just got into this ridiculous mess where um, now we we think the state is there to to um, pay pay for all, meet mm. all our needs, and um, you know the result of that is just massive, massive debt, which um, has come to a head thanks to rising interest yeah. rates. 
Absolutely ridiculous. Ross, thanks very much indeed. Ross Clark there giving us the lowdown uh, from the Telegraph's perspective on Jeremy Hunt and his speech. Of course, Jeremy Hunt thinks that everything's tickety-boo. He thinks that Britain is a genius country. He thinks that we can build on our innovation. He thinks that we can build on all of the great things that make Britain great. Well, that's all very well, but nobody's got any money, right? Because we keep being taxed to the wazoo. We are paying literally more tax than we've ever paid in this country since the Second World War. And you need to reduce the tax if you want economic growth. It's that simple. 0344 499 1000. We'll take some calls uh, coming next. And we'll talk some more about the 183 million quid that's just been made. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. By the migrants. And I'm talking about the people traffickers, not the actual migrants themselves. They're not quite that wealthy. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Apologies for a slightly croaky voice. Uh, the Lurgy finally got me. I managed to avoid it through most of Christmas. Well, all of Christmas, really, uh, and all of the new year. Uh, but finally, uh, somebody has given me something. Uh, but don't worry, uh, I'm stocking up on Lemsip. I've got some uh, uh, strepsils. I've also got uh, now some lemon and ginger tea, which has been very nicely supplied to me by uh, our very able production team. So I shall hopefully be able to get through without croaking too much. But thank you very much indeed for everything. Bit of breaking news for you here which we've got which is a terrible story i'm sure there will be more developing throughout the course of the day an nhs hospital trust has been fined eight hundred thousand pounds after admitting failings in the care of a baby who died 23 minutes after being born nottingham university hospitals pleaded guilty after the death of winter andrews uh, who died in 2019 uh, it's a breaking news story of course so we will bring you more details on that obviously there's been an investigation ongoing because this happened four years ago um, and it's a terrible terrible story uh, so we'll bring you more on that as and when we can also another breaking news story about matt hancock uh, speaking of <clears throat> care for the nhs it turns out that he hasn't paid quite as much to charity as he said that he would he's only given three percent of his fee for i'm a celebrity get me out of here to charity um, he said that he was going to donate a lot of money uh, and that was his defense for going into the jungle he was paid three hundred twenty thousand apparently for his three-week stint on the reality tv show and he has given ten thousand to two charities. Uh, he previously said that he would donate more than his MP's salary, which apparently is 84000 So that didn't turn out quite to be so true, did it? So sorry, Matt, uh, I'm afraid uh, we'll have to put you on the naughty step for that because that means you haven't really lived up to what you said you were going to do. But who on earth would be surprised by that? Scott in Suffolk says, Hi, Mike, do you need a chip butty? As you sound like Phyllis from Coronation Street. Hey, Percy, love fancy a chip butty. There we are. Um... We give billions away in foreign aid, and yet we're still borrowing and getting in more debt. Stop foreign aid now, says Simon in Darlington. Um, have one from Chloe. I had a sofa delivered. They left it jammed at the top of the stairs. I could see how to get it in, but the men were being absolute muppets, so I told them to get lost. My sister and I got it in 
on our own. Well, that's interesting. We've also got uh, a great picture which has been uh, tweeted to us by Alex, uh, who says, I once cut a door frame out to get a sofa through a front door. Where there's a will, there is indeed a way. Well, well done. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way as well. Uh, there is one for people smugglers, people traffickers, because we've got a story from the Times this morning, and we're about to speak to Alp Mehmet about it, uh, in which it says... £183 million is the amount of money that's been made in the past year alone by people traffickers. Absolutely incredible number. A massive number. If we could tax them, that would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, let's talk to Alp Manning from Migration Watch and find out what's going on. Alp, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, sir. I mean, I've been saying for quite a while, Alp, um, can we find a business in this country, preferably a public sector one, that actually works efficiently and does well? We finally found one. Unfortunately, it's people traffickers, but they've found, they've found probably the greatest method of travel, the most successful, the most profitable. Um, it's an incredible amount of money. And that's why it's not going to stop, Mike. Right. As I, I think the last time we discussed this issue, we... Uh, I said, I'm pretty sure that until we send out the message that crossing by boat won't work, I'm afraid they will keep coming. Mm. And the number is inexhaustible. And this year, it will almost certainly be a lot more than last year. Well, it really will. Well, I mean, the thing that really impresses you when you watch the figures here is that only uh, five years ago, they made something like one million pounds, right? 2018 and they've increased the profits by a hundredfold i mean that by any 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 measure is an extraordinary business four thousand pounds per head they're charging well in in 2018 the whole year and it only really got going in october of that year there were 299 who came last year it was close to forty-six thousand. So why wouldn't they right. when they can charge that sort of money and having got them here, they get to stay? Of course, they will keep on doing it. And as for Yvette Cooper saying yesterday that she's going to stop it by tackling the gangs, uh, ho-ho is what I would say to that. Frankly, uh, it shows that the political class are bereft of ideas on what to do about this and what... Yvette Cooper said yesterday was effectively to say, I have no idea how to stop it. And I'm afraid that's the way things are at the moment. Yes, absolutely right. And of course, you know, one of the five priorities of the government, sadly for a lot of people, it's the fifth one down. So I don't know whether they're going to do the other four first, but it is stop the boats. It's a very simple message. But what does it mean? Because I haven't seen any evidence that this government and this Home Secretary is going to do anything different from any previous one. Well, uh, you're right. So far, I think there's very little evidence. I do say, and just to be fair to Suella Braverman, uh, I, I think she genuinely means it. Whether she's successful in the end, well, we'll see. Certainly, uh, until we start detaining people, dealing with them quickly, and returning them or removing them, I'm afraid they will keep coming. Well, exactly right. But here's an interesting question from Jeff, who's texted into 87222. If the traffickers are making this sort of money, you have to ask, where are they keeping it? You can't put £183 million under the bed. And I was listening, funnily enough, to an interview, because there's a movie or a TV series coming out about the Brinks-Matt robbery. 
um, and people were explaining who were involved in it um, that basically it was such a kind of groundbreaking robbery because so much, I think £26 million worth of, uh, of gold bullion was stolen from a, a van at Heathrow. But not only did it baffle the police at the beginning, but it changed the way the police looked at things because the, the gold was taken away and melted down and it was then resold back into the market. The money was laundered abroad. You know, and suddenly this was an international scandal, an international criminal enterprise, which obviously this is as well. Um, so where's the money going and, and are you in any way able to shed any light on, on where the money ends up? Um, I, I wish I could say exactly where it all was. And I, I, if, if we don't know, then you would expect the government to know where this money is. Very clearly, they haven't got a scooby where the money is. And it's probably because this isn't a, a case of a few big gangs, ruthless gangs actually putting it together. I think it's a much looser arrangement than that, where um, the money could be anywhere from, frankly, in, in any country, be it Switzerland, be it France, be it in Serbia, you name it. And I, I think they've, they've got ways of stashing their money where we can't get hold of it. On the other hand, I think it's perfectly possible that our government working with other governments can get a better idea of where that money is mm. and tackle it. But it still won't stop the boats until they stop succeeding. I'm afraid they will keep coming. Mm. And even if you arrest, identify a few and take their money, there's many, many more to take their place and it will just keep going on in this way. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because what it will also certainly do is provide them with lots of what they might call seed money to continue the process of bringing people from Europe uh, or from North Africa or from uh, the Middle East and wherever it is, other places where they're coming from, and even smuggling people in now from Central America, which seems extraordinary to me. Um, but you've also got this kind of um, never-ending supply of these very, very hard-wearing dinghies now, which I'm told are made in China, and there's quite a sophisticated shipping route for those to get to northern France so that when they do produce, you know, 50 men, they've got a boat immediately to get into. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's China. There's been talk of boats being produced in Turkey. It can happen anywhere. Who knows? Perhaps it's going on in Russia, for all I know. It's it's not simply a case of targeting a particular group and getting to the bottom of it. It's spread across the globe, this this whole network of people, and there's no shortage of producers, of dinghies, of rafts, of whatever you want and whatever you need all over the place. Mm. They can be quickly put together and that's that's what happens, I'm afraid. Right. And we've been told, um, as I'm sure you've heard as well, that some of the boats that come this year might actually be bigger because we know that in the Mediterranean, certainly parts of the southern Mediterranean, they've been using boats that they can get a couple of hundred people on. I mean, if they start doing that, it really does become a massive problem because it's bad enough now when 50 arrive or 100 arrive, or in the case of uh, just the other day, 1,000 people arrived on maybe, um, you know, 10 boats or something, or maybe, you know, 20 boats. But if you're going to bring boats with 200, 250 people on, I mean, that starts to become a critical number, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> frankly, I, I'm not even sure that they need to do that. It 
it could be that uh, in northern France, having boats that size might not be feasible because it will be it will take longer to put them together. And, and I, I, I don't know how, how uh, they're going to do it. But I, I suspect that it will become slightly impractical if they've got very big boats. Mm. Uh, we, we'll see. I, I, certainly, uh, even with the boats that they've got now and getting 50 or more into each boat, they're still going to be making a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. And while they're making that sort of money, why should they stop? Well, quite. I mean, I wonder whether it's easier, in a way, to kind of battle the la- if they do start bringing larger boats, whether it's easy to, t- easy to turn those around because they might be more perhaps seaworthy, but then they might not be because we also see those things capsizing occasionally in the Mediterranean, don't we? Well, I've, frankly, if they put together boats that take 200 people, at some point we're going to lose 200 people when these things capsize, as they will do. Mm. I mean, the channel is not the Mediterranean, frankly, and it's bad enough in the Mediterranean. My my worry is two things, really. Uh, One is that they're going going, going to continue coming But so long as they are able to uh, um, rid themselves of their documents or destroy their passports, Mm. any other identity documents, and get here, and then we wring our hands, say, what on earth are we going to Mm. do about this, and let them stay on. As happened with this uh, guy, Abdul Rahim Zai, who it took two years to uh, provide the evidence that he was uh, 19, not 14 Mm. when he arrived. That's senseless. That's absolutely bananas, frankly. That it should take some... some... When when you see someone, I mean, you you tell me if you can uh, look at a a youngster, a a 14-year-old, and believe them when they say, uh, I'm actually... uh, uh, more than that or I'm less than that yeah. if you see a 14 year old frankly they look like a 14 year exactly. old exactly. and if they if you look if you see a 19 or 20 year old well frankly they look like 19 20 mm. year olds they've got a beard in some cases they may even be having a receding hairline yeah. it's so obvious and yet officials hands are tied they are hamstrung it was only a couple of years ago when Priti Patel was Home Secretary that the instructions and guidance to uh, officials dealing with cases was that if there was any doubt that uh, they were not over 25, then they should be given the benefit of that doubt. Mm. And I, I mean, that that doesn't make sense it's certainly not common sense that uh, this programme is paid for. No, you're absolutely right. Alp, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Alp Mehmet, Chairman of Migration Watch there, just saying it doesn't make any sense, does it? And they're never going to stop this ridiculous uh, uh, toll uh, for the people coming to this country. If the money they're making is this big, why would they stop doing it? They won't. 183 million quid last year alone extraordinary stuff. Coming up, we're going to speak to Professor Andrew Tettenden, Tettenborn, I should say, uh, writer with the Spectator, Professor of Law at Swansea Law School. He's going to talk to us about uh, the ever-increasing um, reach of local mayors and local towns to try and use uh, their powers to stop you from driving around. 
Ulez, Oxford, Bournemouth. It's happening everywhere. Manchester next. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Don't forget, we're still talking about deliveries and the problems that you might have had in addition uh, to Jeremy Hunt. I had a wardrobe delivered and they said they could not get it upstairs, uh, says this text. So I told them to leave it downstairs and then I gave them a tenner and lo and behold, they managed to get it upstairs. Uh, Hi, Mike, says Roy. Saw Jeremy Hunt's statement this morning, spotted his deliberate mistake. He'd got the right answers just in the wrong order. I think his list was upside down. As for your war on woke, totally agree. These people are very clever at hiding behind others when instigating their crackpot ideas. They need flushing out and putting on the spot to explain by top people like yourself. Keep the faith. Roy, this is what we do here. Uh, we try and uh, cut through uh, with the sword of common sense. You remember that uh, uh, statement that was once made uh, by Jonathan Aitken about the sword of truth uh, and the shield of fair play? Well, we don't have any of that, but what we do have uh, is the sword of common sense, which we will slice through uh, anyone who tries to tell us that they've got a better idea than we have about how to run the country. Let's talk now to Professor Andrew Tettenborn, uh, who's a professor of law at the Swansea Law School, because he's got an idea as to how we can fight back against these ULES nutters, the eco-maniacs who want to stop us from driving around and make it more and more expensive for us to actually get in a car and go anywhere. Professor, a very good morning to you. And a good morning to you, Mike. Forgive my sort of sniffling. I've got a slight cold, which I haven't been able to fight off, I'm afraid. So uh, I'll try not to cough too much as we uh, discuss this. Um, one of the problems that's happening at the moment is that the, the motorist is seemingly under siege, isn't he? I mean, wherever you go, whether it's London, whether it's Oxford, whether it's Bournemouth, Manchester, everywhere we now have as, as sort of, you know, places of, of, of human habitation, they keep telling us what we can and can't do with a car. It's becoming more and more ridiculous. But you say um, the Tories can actually avoid falling into Sadiq Khan's Ulez trap. Tell us how. Well, um, you could have added Bristol, by the way, to the other cities that they're trying to get the yes, motorist of get, uh, get the motorist on. Um, well, the question is what you do about Sadiq Khan's attempts to make the ULES extend to the sort of leafy lanes of Essex and Surrey, mm. not to mention places like Slough, yeah. uh, which is quite frankly a money-making exercise. Mm. Um, as far more than anything else, um, he's very aware that the ULES, I think in the last three years, even the existing ULES has brought in something approaching 20 million quid yeah. in payments for, from people who, who have to travel in that particular area. Um, the difficulty is this is obviously an exercise in money raising to get rid of the. Uh, deficit on on TFL. Mm. Um, it's also a very re regressive tax, if you look at it. Um, and this is actually one of the political arguments against it. Um, it's a regressive tax aimed at those who can't afford fancy cars that would be allowed to go into the ULES for free. Um, it's a tax that goes to, you know, the plumber, the florist, the roofer, the builder in somewhere like Slough or um, even even, even um, somewhere like Havering. Yes. Um, who's now going to be faced with a tax of something like 50 quid a week um, in order to be able to use his van. Um, and of course, that that's partly going to be passed on in increased prices to people who use his services. 
and part of the loss will be borne by him. But the point I'm making is that this is fundamentally a political argument. We have to shout loud and long that what Sadiq Khan is doing is trying to show who's boss and um, trying to raise money in any way he possibly can. Um, the way not to do it is to challenge it legally. Yes. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that, well, my spies tell me that there isn't an enormous chance that the legal challenge will succeed. Mm. I may be wrong about that. It's God's own job yes. to foresee the result of a judicial review. And is this between the, the individual sort of, you know, boroughs that are challenging it and the TFL yep. organisation? Is that is that the review you're talking about? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, now, I, th I think that they're, they're more likely than not to lose. And, you know, your person just getting by who lives in those boroughs isn't going to thank them for spending what could be a seven figure sum of his money on um, a sort of quixotic exercise in legal challenges. Right. Um, there's another point, too, which is a much, a much more principled point. Uh, which is I'm not sure whether judges ought to be taking decisions on what are fundamentally political matters anyway. Yeah. Um, because, you know, well, look forward three years. If we have a Labour government, um, we need to be able to attack them politically. We mm. don't want simply to be relying on judicial review um, that sort of right. thing. I mean, isn't it right to say as well, by way of an argument, that actually this particular plan is not really designed to save the planet. It's not actually going to result in less emissions. What, what it is going to result in is more fines and more people paying money into the coffers of the TFL organisation. So it's all about raising money, right? I strongly suspect that it is. Actually, it may even have a re have a uh, an unexpected effect. Imagine that you're in, I don't know, Havering, mm. and you want to go off to Harrow for the day. Yeah. Now, currently, you can go to the station and take a non-polluting train. Right. From you know, on, on TFL. Um, as from August. You'll be charged £12.50 if you so much as start your car in Havering. Mm. Um, you're just going to say to yourself, well, I'm going to be charged £12.50 anyway. I might as well be hanged for a sheep as for a lamb. Yeah. I'll drive the whole ruddy way right. and save the train fare on TFL. Because remember, TFL fares are also going up. They are. So I think actually this is likely to be counterproductive at yes. the end of the day. Um, you know, it's all very well to say, well, you know, this is going to save the save the lives of so many children, which, frankly, we don't absolute know. Rubbish. Yeah, absolutely rubbish. Simply, also, the installation, the installation of the congestion charge has led to one thing and one thing only, and that is more congestion. To a large extent, it has. And of course, it's led to congestion just outside ULES areas, uh, because I noticed that. Um, not actually in London, but in another city. One of my children lives in that city. Mm. Um, she is just outside the congestion area, but I had to drive a long roundabout way to get to her to avoid going through it. Mm. And of course, all it means is that people who have the misfortune to live 100 yards outside the congestion area right. 
one, are going to have people parking in their roads. Two, are going to find their roads, in any case, 24-hour car parks. Yes. Well, don't worry. They've got an answer for that. We've got to listen. We must get you back on, uh, Andrew, because we're out of time, unfortunately. But uh, there's obviously much to discuss here because, of course, the answer to all of that is once they start filling up the roads around you uh, is they start putting in uh, residential access passes and you have to actually then pay to park your car in that road and they make even more money. Absolutely ridiculous. It is totally a cash cow. Having a car now means that not only are you paying to have the car, you're also paying everybody for driving it. You're paying the local council. You're paying for a car parking space. You're paying uh, for the uh, pleasure of going into a congestion zone or a ULA zone. It's absolutely shocking. Professor Andrew Tettenborn from the Swansea Law School. Thank you uh, very much indeed. We've got much more to do. Plenty of you to talk to, of course. And uh, we'll be doing that coming up after this. Welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Now, I said I was going to try and cheer you all up. Well, it hasn't worked out quite as well as I would have thought, because unfortunately now we're going to talk about how uh, the doomsday clock has marched on. And in the last few days, we've moved ever closer, actually, to doomsday. Um, now, you might not know what the doomsday clock is. So luckily, we've got James Hartfield here. James, very good morning to you. Morning. Uh, author and historian, writer for Spikes Online as well. Um, first of all, to explain what the doomsday clock actually is, when was the doomsday clock sort of invented? Well, in 1947, the scientists that were working, atomic scientists on the Manhattan Project, felt a responsibility, a Mm. guilt maybe, about what they'd done. Because they created mass destruction, presumably. They had. They they were out to defeat Japan originally, but um, they worried about what it would mean. And so they've got together a couple of times a year Mm. for the last uh, 60, 70 years to uh, estimate how close we are to doomsday which they do like scientists you know they add up all cheery the... kind of thing to do isn't it <laughs> i guess it I mean, felt is, bad is it um is it and is, is doomsday technically mutually assured destruction is that what it is i it was uh, well they started before there was a nuclear uh, a, a russian nuclear okay. uh, deterrent they were just uh, in the abstract looking at the question but they did get more concerned mm. and the world was concerned in the era of of detente and um, uh, the the two arms uh, arranged against each other, there was a lot of anxiety about what that would mean. Mm. And, you know, I guess they played a role lobbying for uh, diplomacy. That was uh, what they were really doing. I don't think we should take it too literally. No. I I think you shouldn't take it literally at all because otherwise, I mean, those 90 seconds are up. Well, is is, is it 90 seconds now? Yeah, I think they um, we were on a hundred seconds, and then right. they moved it um, another ten seconds. What was the furthest away it ever was when they first started it? Well, they did move it back at the end of the Cold War okay. rather wisely. They moved it back at about seventeen minutes. Okay. Um, uh, uh, so it's been, but I, I think it's worth saying that it's it's not real. Um, you know, it isn't. You know, we haven't got ninety seconds to live. No, uh, it's, it's a bit a, like the forty-five minute warning from Alistair Campbell, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't true either. Well, yes. It, <laughs> and in the same way, it's a way of um, getting your attention. Yeah. You know, I think the, the scientists are serious, but they're also trying to um, get people's attention by using this symbolic emblem mm. of um, uh, uh, the danger we face. Right. And so, I mean, where is where is that doomsday clock? I mean, we've just seen, uh, looking at it, there is an actual sort of what looks like a quarter of a clock, if it's not a real clock. Is there an actual clock somewhere? I've th- I mean, you know... I mean, they should have one, should they? They should, they should have one, but I think they're, most, they're just symbolic devices. 
Right. Uh, People often do it. You know, it's a common way of mm. grabbing your attention. Yeah. You know, hellfire preachers used to do it. Yeah. They would say the apocalypse is here, so you must all stay in the church. Yes. Um, well, Labour Party does it, don't they, when they go 24 hours to save the NHS? Uh, they do that uh, every year. Every every election time. Right. And amazingly, it's always here. Incredibly so. A bit like the doomsday clock. So, I mean, how far has it been away from midnight at, at its most sort of far point at, at which point was it I mean has it ever been just at like a, you know 11pm or something or no I mean seconds? I think they were always trying to illustrate the point from 1947 on but 1947 is when it was further in, yeah. furthest away right. and like I say they did uh, they don't usually move backwards I think that's one of the the mistakes of the um, uh, the way of talking about it is that it ju- everything just seems to get worse right um, so you know you don't. I mean, and it, obviously, if you're counting nuclear warheads, people tend to stack them up. Mm. Um, it's quite rare that they they put them away. Yeah, I wonder whether people have a different view of nuclear warheads now. You know, younger people, because we kind of grew up um, with the Cold War in a way, the kind of the threat of nuclear weapons being fired. We we used to see nuclear weapons being put in, into places. I mean, I remember driving up and down the, the, the country we used to go to the holiday in Scotland and see a big sort of missile being driven on the motorway and you kind of go is that a nuclear missile but you never really knew but it was kind of in your head wasn't it it was part of your um, your sort of psyche and certainly when the raid before the Gorbachev years you know the sort of Reagan um, years and Star Wars and, the, and you know the, 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 the uh, you know the space race and all of that you were very much aware that there were nuclear buttons that could be pressed well, it was the issue, and it, it governed diplomacy mm. and how the world was divided up. Um, I, you know, I, I I had friends who camped outside Greenham Common yeah. because they thought the cruise missiles would be launched from mm. there. And, of course, it was. It, it's not absurd, you know, in the same way that nuclear scientists mm. are not making an absurd point when they say Russia is a nuclear power, this war in the Ukraine's got a lot of danger in it. But I guess modern-day... Um, people are, are more likely concerned about other kinds of doomsdays, mm. you know, and the the nuclear um, conflagration has got to compete mm. with uh, climate change or uh, poisoning the seas. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of... Do you um, think people just like to have something to be frightened of? I, I, I guess that um, uh, political leaders and religious leaders uh, often worried that they're not really getting their message mm. across and they're tempted to make the point more stridently maybe than right. they should right and uh, you know so climate change is a real thing but uh, just how destructive it would be yeah. in the next 10 years is, is well that's the thing isn't it people believe things uh, people think that you know if we don't do something by a certain date that you know the earth will kind of self-destruct I'm not one of those. I don't think that's anywhere near happening. Equally, I don't think that Vladimir Putin will fire a nuclear weapon in a massive way. However, he might use some kind of tactical nuclear weapon. People talk about that quite openly now, who are kind of, you know, strategists in war. They say, well, maybe, and because people were saying to me, you know, actually, we say, we say tactical nuclear weapon, but if he was to fire one, it's actually quite big. It's not a small thing, and it would be just as bad as any of the old-fashioned nuclear weapons being fired. Sure, and people make stupid decisions when they're under pressure. Um, uh, and, you know, it does feel like a lot of his um, escape routes are closing off. Yeah. I think that it's quite a dangerous situation in that way. But I, I think, generally speaking, we ought to be cautious about 
sounding the alarm because it, it really it, it doesn't have the effect that people think it does it does galvanize attention for a while but mm. it demoralizes people over time yeah there's interesting studies about um what uh, fear of climate change does to uh, young people mm. psychologists have looked at this and um whilst it's true that uh, a, a minority become very active and want to do things many other uh, people just feel demoralized yeah. and and fearful and uh, you know psychologists used to look at uh, what young people what their nightmares were mm. in the 1960s people had nightmares about the nuclear Armageddon yeah. uh, but now lots of young people are telling psychologists you know children that they're um, they're terrified yeah. of because climate people, change yeah, because people are terrifying them I mean it's not that surprising is it yeah, and, the, and, you know, if you want to make a, a gripping TV drama or mm. a film, uh, the end of the world is pretty compelling. Well, do you remember Al Gore and his famous movie that was banned from being played in schools because um, he called it an inconvenient truth, and it turned out to be an inconvenient pack of lies, and a judge actually regarded most of the information in it as completely false. But he was pushing it and going, this is absolutely what's going to happen. And some of the stuff that comes out of the United Nations panel on climate change, um, some of their predictions haven't come true. But they just kind of gloss over it and go, well, you, we should be counting ourselves lucky that yeah, that didn't uh, happen. But, the people, psychology of it is interesting to me. Sure. And, and, you know, lots of it was misinterpretation. You know, the IPC would set out scenarios yeah. and um, uh, journalists would invariably choose the most extraordinary mm. scenario. But usually, and people would quote them and say, but this is what they say is going to happen. But then when it didn't happen, they sort of didn't mention it. You know, because I remember reading um, a story back in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, saying that by 2010, you know, Canary Wharf would be underwater. Canary Wharf would be underwater, and so would uh, Manhattan Island. Yeah. Well, they did have floods, but they, did. they ebbed away. But the water went away again. I mean, that's um, what floods are, isn't it? And, you know, um, there, there have been many of these. In 2007, after the Stern Report, mm. many people said that 2016 would be the tipping point. Yeah. You know, and there were in the Guardian newspaper they had a clock, a kind of a doomsday. Well, sorry, clock. we now refer to the Guardian as the racist Guardian newspaper oh. because I'm afraid they've just been rumbled uh, by some podcasters. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not my sword. it's not my fault. It's, Live it's by the fault. sword, die by the sword. You might well, say exactly right. I mean, it's not really ironic. Quite funny, really. But I mean, who's in charge of the doomsday clock? Then are there sort of custodians of it? Are there individuals? Well, who... it's the bulletin of the uh, atomic scientists. Uh, the bulletin is mm. it's the group really, they're, right. and they're. I mean, they've always been kind of liberal. You mm. know, I'm, I'm a liberal myself. Mm. You know, uh, I, I and they've always been in favour of negotiations. So they tend to skew to um, uh, pronouncements. That, okay that are less bellicose yes they're not um right-wing republicans but it's not like somebody has the power to move the clock they do they have to have a meeting do they have to discuss oh yeah it? i mean they uh, but it is i Apparently mean the in a sense, clock's ticking for us we're going to go in a minute. <laughs> it, it they do have the power to move the clock but right. they they do it collectively but it really is just come out of their heads okay i mean they they go through the motions of right. counting so they're just mad fear mongers really aren't they I, well, I wouldn't yeah, there's go no that time far. for you to answer it, I'm afraid, but there we are. Uh, the Doomsday Clock is coming up to midday. Uh, thank you very much indeed. That was interesting. James Hartfield there, uh, writer, author and historian. Um, it's uh, very close to midnight, but not as close as you think. This is Talk TV. 
Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.